the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob established himself as the owner of the property that he was in. Now, this is a fascinating study today as we focus on Genesis chapter 48. It is very good. So let's let's do that in about three minutes time. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering the Bible in about three minutes, teaching on that. Corey is here. Corey, what's going on? I'm going to be talking about the death and burial of Jacob. Ryan? Well, there are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, but did you know that at least two of the prophecies pinpoint when he was going to step into history? No, I didn't know that. Very interesting. Okay, Janice, what are you going to do? Today I'm going to talk about family blessings. All right, very good. This is a good study as we focus on the last part of Genesis. Family blessings, this is going to be good. All right, take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage in the Bible, the most important book of all. Let's listen to what God says. Genesis 48, 1 through 14. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand, and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 through 14. 
Genesis 48, Genesis 49, and Genesis 50, the last three chapters of the book of Genesis, are an interesting read as we conclude the first book of the Bible. Now keep in mind, you can take your Bible guide and follow us. And over the weekend, we covered the story of Joseph. This is a great story to cover. And I'll tell you something, you need to, you need to really read that if you haven't. Well, Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, before his dying father, Jacob. Joseph was not sure what would happen. But here in Genesis 48, we witness an absolutely beautiful scene as Jacob strengthens himself to adopt Joseph's sons from Egypt to become his heirs and receive the blessings of his first and second born instead of Reuben and Simeon. It is a powerful story of redemption and reconciliation. Joseph was sold to Egypt as a slave and yet became their ruler. Not through rebellion or rage, but through trusting in God's provision. What an interesting way to achieve freedom from slavery. Not through the violence of man's hand, but through the ways of God's hand. What was intended for evil, God used it to make good. And he can do the same for you and your life today too. I believe it, and I have seen it. Now, this is a really good one. And as we focus on this, we need to pay attention because 48 and 49 are the places where we have the blessings of Jacob on his sons, which are going to play out now over the next couple of weeks as we study the law, the laws of Moses. Very, very interesting. Freedom from slavery. Genesis 48. Take your Bible guide and turn to it today. The most important book of all, which is the Bible. I would ask that you open that up and get ready to read and study it for six minutes and 30 seconds as we focus on this. But we need to understand what God is saying. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for your help. Help us, Lord, to understand what you've said. There's a lot of things in the way with our emotions and everything else. Help us to understand. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would heal us and that we would hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name. And we say to you, Lord, make it so or amen. All right. Now, with that in mind, we go to the scripture, which is this. Genesis 48, verse 1. Here is what it says. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel, or Jacob, strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people. And give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Verse 5. Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. And they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, 
When I came from Padam, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Epaphria or Epareph. And I buried her there on the way to Ephraim, that is Bethlehem. Now, this is interesting because here we see something that we don't see very often in the Bible. Jacob established his rightful possession in the land of Canaan. That's where he buried his wife, but that's where God told him. God is the one who determines our citizenship. It is not about where we are born. Now, I need to say my citizenship is not American. My citizenship is not Canadian. My citizenship is of no country in this world. My citizenship is of heaven. When I gave my life to the Lord, Jesus Christ came into my life and his Holy Spirit is here and filled me and my passport because my real name is in heaven. Isn't that something? To go to the border of heaven to get your passport, that is amazing. Isn't that something? Paul said that too. Very, very interesting thing to think about. So let's keep that in mind. Genesis 48, watch this, verse 8. Then Jacob, or Israel, saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from his, beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both. Ephraim with his right hand and towards, the, towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Okay, Joseph brought his sons with him to see his father Jacob before he died. You see, God does what's right, whether it is according to our traditions or not. Okay, so this is what happened. He br brings them here and he tells them, now listen, here's my sons. So what's he going to do? Well, we're going to find out. Joseph brought his sons with him to see his father, Jacob, before he died. God does what is right, whether it's according to our traditions or not. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the youngest, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was his firstborn. Now that's incredible. Remember this, Jacob's blessing was not given with his hands alone, but with the divine touch of God. God always does what is right in every situation. Now remember this, even though Joseph had brought his sons, even though Joseph had done all that, brought them in order they should be, he changes the order. Jacob does. And God does that through him because his eyes didn't see that well. He, in his spirit, did that because that's how God had it planned. And that's exactly what God will do. When we bring all of the situations to bear, we don't even know the answer to what God's going to do. God will do it through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's something we need to understand today. We don't need to know every detail. But when we're there, 
God will do what is best for us because the Lord's will doesn't change. And, and, and we don't change the Lord's will. The Lord's will changes us. We don't change the Lord's will. The Lord's will changes us, beloved. We need to hear that today and we need to know that. Father, help us to know that in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, every one of us said together, amen and make it so, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here at the end of the book of Genesis, we have a record of the death of the patriarch Jacob and the interesting, you know, funerary practices that happened around him. So uh, he was honored by Pharaoh and by the Egyptians by being embalmed in the Egyptian style, which of course means that he was turned into an Egyptian mummy. He was mummified. Uh, and we see uh, Joseph and his brothers making a trip back to the promised land, back to Canaan and uh, placing his body Body in the cave of Machpelah. So today we're going to be taking a look at the supposed site of the cave of Machpelah. Take a look. Genesis 23 recounts a land purchase agreement between Abraham and Ephron the Hittite. Their agreement took place at the city gate of Hebron to be witnessed and resulted in Abraham's ownership of a field with a cave in it. This cave served as Abraham's family tomb and became known as the cave of Machpelah. The Bible records the internment of at least six people here, Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah, Leah and Jacob. After these six, it's often assumed closed for burials, as the internments of the sons of Jacob are not recorded, only that of Joseph, whose mummified body was buried at Shechem on land that his father Jacob had purchased. Today, there is a famous site in Hebron that claims to be built on top of the cave of Machpelah. The foundation, walls, and floor of the interior courtyard of this building is believed to be the only fully preserved building of Herod the Great. The construction and design style seem iconically Herodian, and the similarities with Herod's Jerusalem temple are obvious. Herod's structure was a massive roofless enclosure that may not have had an entrance. The ones there today were cut much later. Over the millennia separating Herod from us, various rulers and conquerors have altered and added to the structure of Machpelah, developing legends to go along with it, like it containing the secret passage to the Garden of Eden, being the burial site of almost anyone important, like Adam and Eve, Moses and Zipporah, and more historically plausible, the sons of Jacob along with Esau. Modern research has not been allowed to truly commence here, but underground exploration and modification has occurred in history at least once in the Crusader period. The closest the site came to an archaeological investigation was in 1967. Secretly, a 12-year-old girl was lowered through a small hole armed with a camera and a flashlight. She explored as much as she could, taking measurements and notes. She did not find the bones of the patriarchs, but the internal masonry seemed Herodian and she described large stone slabs. It remains unclear if the slabs were mounted to the wall or if they concealed chambers. So there we go, to think that there might be an Egyptian mummified body in the cave of Machpelah. 
We'll probably never know, but it might still be there. You know? well, it, I mean, that, that's fascinating. And, and you, know, you kind of wish you could go in, but it's a holy site. So yeah. you can't, people won't let you go in there. So, so my, my five-year-old Emerson adores ancient Egypt. Uh, and That's with, true. We even had, a, you had an Egyptian party for him. Yes, yeah. an Egyptian-themed <laughs> birthday party when he turned five. Uh, he's a kid after my own heart. But when mm -hmm. I told him that Jacob was mummified, man. Jacob's the coolest now. <laughs> my five-year-old. Very good. Okay, he Ryan. He swings be between Egypt and dinosaurs. He does, be yes. Because he said the next house that you move to, he wants to be able to dig for dinosaur bones in the yes. backyard. That's yes. a bigger no quest. No pressure, mom and dad. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> All right. Well, my segment today documents two specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, there are, of course, a lot of prophecies in the Bible describing and predicting what the Messiah's life and mission would look like. But these two we're going to talk about today actually pinpoint a specific time in history that the Messiah had to come. Take a look. While there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible describing the Messiah's life and mission, there are at least two that predict when he would arrive. The most well-known about of these prophecies is the so-called 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9. This was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel at a time when Jerusalem and its temple was in ruins and the Israelites were exiles in Babylon. One of the things that makes this passage so important is that it gives a time frame that has clear beginning and ending points. According to verses 25 and 26, the Messiah will come sometime after a decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. When he does arrive, he will be cut off and have nothing. And this will happen sometime before the rebuilt Jerusalem and temple are destroyed for a second time. This limits the time frame for the Messiah's arrival between 444 BC, when Artaxerxes gave this decree, and 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed once again. But what's so stunning about this prophecy is that it seems to narrow this window of time down even more, even down to a specific day which just so happened to be the moment in history when Jesus of Nazareth made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. While not all accept this interpretation, at the very least, Daniel provides us a time frame with a clear beginning, 444 BC and end, AD 70. Yet it seems that another biblical passage reduces this 500-year window of time even further. Genesis 49.10 declares that the scepter will not pass from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. According to several rabbis and scholars, Shiloh is a clear reference to the Messiah, but can also be translated as the one to whom it belongs. And the scepter refers to Judah's tribal identity and judicial authority. And judicial authority is the right to administer and enforce Torah law upon Jews living in Judah, including the right to judge capital cases and apply capital punishment. Based upon this understanding, Genesis 49.10 can be paraphrased this way. Tribal identity and judicial authority will not cease from Judah until the Messiah, the one to whom these legitimately belong, comes. History seems to indicate that Judah lost this authority sometime between 6 BC and AD 30. Significantly, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, they lost it in AD 30, the exact time Jesus' ministry began. 
And as with Daniel's prophecy, since the temple along with the genealogical records were destroyed in AD 70, this was the absolute latest that the Messiah could come. So Genesis 49.10 would appear to limit the Messiah's arrival between AD 30 and 70. A rabbi named Rachman confirmed this as he lamented, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Of course, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, did come, but his people rejected him and cut him off, just as Daniel had predicted. Nevertheless, the day is coming when they will see the one whom they pierced and recognize him as their Messiah. So a lot of us know about Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, but Genesis 49 verse 10 also seems to narrow down the window of time in which the Messiah had to come, which was at the maximum between 6 BC and AD 70, since that's around the time that the scepter departed from Judah. But as I said in the segment, based on the Talmud, this window is even smaller, from AD 30 to 70. And AD 30 is a very interesting date because this was right around the time that Jesus began his earthly ministry. So Genesis 49 verse 10, Daniel 9, and the Talmud all point to a clear time in history when the Messiah had to arrive. And he certainly did arrive. Jesus came exactly when he was supposed to, and he'll come again exactly when he's supposed to. Yeah, this is really important and interesting because as you begin to study this, um, whatever your background is, you begin to see that there's very specific times that the Bible has pointed to. Uh, and those times are, you know, trackable. You can see yeah. them in history. And, and only from our perspective, when, when Genesis was written, when Daniel was written, there was no way yeah. to know that, right? And that's what the Bible often has those things locked until, until you know, they until unfold, they happened. right? Yeah. But now yeah. looking back, you can see, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely stunning. Very good. Okay, Jan. Well, we see in this chapter of Genesis chapter 48, how Jacob is actually on his deathbed and his son Joseph comes and he brings, Joseph brings his two eldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim to see their grandfather. And Jacob takes this opportunity to bless them uh, as his sons, actually, he adopts them. And you can read that, and we've been taught on that today. But I really wanted to dwell on the fact that it is a blessing for us to be parents and grandparents. And we need to take it very seriously with our children and with our grandchildren to live our lives in a way that demonstrates to our children and to our grandchildren our love for God and what He has done for us. And it's so important for us as parents and especially grandparents to give those blessings to our children and to our grandchildren. So I wanted us to really focus in on that today. And it may be that you don't have biological children or grandchildren, but you know what? You can be a great influence on the younger generation, a great influence and, and someone who steps in to pray for those who maybe don't have 
uh, parents that can do that for them. So it's just very important. Now, when we pastored a church, Rod and I, we would begin the service before Rod would bring the message or the speaker would bring the message. We would read Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9, and that's the Shema. And it reminds us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And listen to this verse. This is where I've based this lesson off today. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These are words that we need to know as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. The things that is that are written in his word need to be in our hearts. We need them in our minds, but we need them in our hearts so that when we face things, when we are dealing with our children and our grandchildren and just the walk of everyday life, Life, we have it in our hearts so that we know how to apply it, how our actions and reactions need to change according to God's word. I remember um, one Sunday after reading this and Rod had given the message that a good friend of mine named Teresa came up to the front and she said, you know what, Janice, I just want to thank you for, you know, reading the Shema every Sunday. And she said, you know what, it's better than our Lotto 649. Now, in Canada, we have something called Lotto 649, and it's one of three national lottery games in Canada. Now, we don't play the lottery, that's for sure. But Teresa's point was this. This is the truth. This is God's word. And this is better than any kind of win of big money or win in the world or earthly things. These are principles in God's word that make an impact, not only on our lives, but as we live our lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that can impact our children, our grandchildren, and have a ripple effect um, among the community. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, very important to remember that when the, the this hearing says to us, the scriptures that I give you today are mm -hmm. to be upon your heart and you are to teach them diligently to your yes. children. <laughs> diligently. And that's not Don't for forget. the youth pastor. That's for the parents exactly. and the grandparents. We need to teach them diligently to our children. So what does that mean, diligently? Well, look it up in the dictionary and you'll discover <laughs> it. That's exactly what it means. We need to pay attention to and show them God's word. I want to remind you that we're available on YouTube. And if you look up Pastor Rod Hembry, Pastor Rod Hembry on YouTube, 
then you can find us because there we answer your questions. Ask the pastor any question you have. We're going to do our best to answer it. And we also do a teaching on Psalms. So that's on YouTube. And remember, Pastor Rod Hembry on YouTube. Okay, let's pray and pray this way. Lord, help me to hear you. Help me to understand you when I pray. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.